0: Harvard Divinity School.
1: Paranthropology, the anthropology of the paranormal, March 23rd, 2022. Good afternoon and welcome to our Noseology's event. My name is Giovanna Parmigiani and I'm the host of this series organized within the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative at the CSWR here at Harvard Divinity School. This series focuses on ways of knowing that are often labeled as non-rational. Traditionally referred to as noses in Western philosophical and religious traditions, and often understood in contraposition to science, these ways of knowing are becoming more and more influential in contemporary societies, popular culture, and academic research. What is the place of spirit possession, divination, mediumships, and experiences perceived as out of the ordinary in our lives? How can we study and approach this type of phenomena? going beyond dichotomies such as body and mind, ordinary and extraordinary reason and experience and matter and spirit. This series hosts scholars of different disciplines and practitioners interested in exploring and expanding the boundaries of what counts as knowledge today. So it is with immense pleasure that I introduce today's guest, Dr. Jack Hunter. Jack Hunter is an anthropologist like me, exploring the borderlands of consciousness Religion, ecology, and the paranormal. He is an or- honorary research fellow with the Alistair Hardy Religious Experience Research Center and a tutor with the Sophia Center for the Study of Cosmology and Culture, University of Wales, Trinity St. David, where he's lead a- tutor on the EMA in ecology and spirituality and teaches on the EMA in cultural astronomy and astrology. He's also a lecturer on the Aleph Trust and Science in Consciousness, Spirituality and Transpersonal Psychology. He's a research fellow with the Parapsychology Foundation and a professional member of the Parapsychological Association. In 2010, he founded Paranthropology, Journal of Anthropological Approaches to the Paranormal. And he's the author of Spirits, Gods and Magic and Manifesting Spirits, and the editor of Mattering the Invisible, Greening the Paranormal, Dan Facts and Talking with the Spirits. He lives in the hills of mid Wales with his family and his website can be found in the chat box now. Today, Dr. Hunter and I will have a conversation on what is the paranormal? How can we make sense of out of the ordinary experiences and how can we study them anthropologically. So thank you, Dr. Hunter, for being with us today and welcome virtually to HDS.
0: Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Great to be asked.
1: <laughs> thank you so much. Um, so since uh, the audience of nosiologists is both of, both of academics and non-academics, um, let's start with terminology. I think uh, it might be a good place to start. Um, what is the paranormal, Is it natural? Is it supernatural? How do you prefer to call out of the ordinary experiences and why?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I like the term paranormal. And a lot of my research or my writing has been about kind of ways of rehabilitating the, the concept of the paranormal. Because if we look at the history of the term itself, and we go back to the origins of the Society for Psychical Research in the 1880s in London, in Cambridge um, it was these people people like Frederick Myers who came up with new terminology, specifically the term supernormal, to refer to things that previously had been talked about in terms of like miracles as uh, things that were in the domain of religion, for example. So from the very beginning of you know serious scientific research on uh, paranormal things, the idea was to bring them out of the domain of sort of mysticism and, and religion. And into the domain of the natural, so actually, paranormal, uh, supernormal are actually alternatives to supernatural. Yeah, so they're saying that actually, this is normal. It's not maybe it's not something that we experience all the time, but it's a normal part of you know, the processes that go on in the world. So from that way of thinking, then of course the paranormal is perfectly natural, and, and you know it makes sense when we look at the the data. Then you know people claim to have these experiences all over the world, um, all through time. So they seem to be normal and natural in that respect as well.
1: Fantastic. And may I ask you, how did you become interested in studying the paranormal?
0: Yeah, well, there's lots of different strands to my interest. One of them was always, uh, I've been interested in religion for a long time. I I wasn't brought up religious. Um, I was brought up actually to be quite sceptical of religion, but it it always fascinated me. And obviously within religion, there are all sorts of um, extraordinary things as well. So I was always drawn to the idea of things like um, miracles or the idea of um, saints and relics and things like that. Where I have grown up here in mid Wales, um, there was a a shrine up the road from where I live for St. Malangesh. And it was said that, you know, it had pieces of her, her body in there. And just the idea of that connection, to me, was fascinating. <laughs> uh, then later, as I started to grow up, um, I had some extraordinary experiences of my own. The most, one of the most significant ones for me was under the influence of uh, magic mushrooms. The very first time that I had that experience, I saw um what i described as kind of like fairies or small entities they seemed to be two-dimensional and they were in the grain of wood of a chest of drawers and they kind of noticed me uh they clocked me they turned and looked at me and then kind of carried on with their procession. and the interesting thing about this experience for me was that there seemed to be some kind of uh Agency or intelligence behind this aspect of the experience. There was other things going on around it that were, uh, you know, let more impersonal kind of hallucinatory kind of experiences. But this particular experience seemed um, to be of something else, and it's kind of stuck with me through the years. And so when I got to university and started to study uh, anthropology, um, I became increasingly interested in different ways of trying to think about. You know, what are the nature of these kinds of experiences that from the mainstream perspective are, they must be delusional. or They have to be explained away in terms of psychopathology or, or whatever. But is there a way that we can look at these experiences without breaking them down, treating them seriously, on, kind of like on their own, on their own terms? And what happens then if you do that? You know, what happens if you te- tra- treat these experiences seriously? And it obviously leads off into lots of different areas they have ended up, you know, becoming involved in parapsychology and uh, religious studies and anthropology and all sorts of different areas to try try and make sense of these uh, experiences.
1: I see. Can you tell us what type of experiences you ended up studying the most um, Hmm. or participating into the most?
0: Yeah, well, the
1: thing which was in the ethnographer and the first and I don't know, I personally sometimes think I, I cannot do that, but, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, well, my PhD research, um, which was the kind of culmination of all of this thinking at, at the time, was based around um, a group called the Bristol Spirit Lodge in Bristol. And they were um, a, a centre, a private home circle for the development of trance and physical mediumship. So there are people who would go into altered states of consciousness in a seance condition, uh, you know, with red lights sitting in the cabinet with a circle of people around. And then the spirit, spirits would basically talk through their bodies. They'd become possessed. And um, this has became my kind of main focus of research throughout my PhD. Uh, so mediumship is what I spent most of my time researching. And uh, I started off... When I when I started early on, quite detached as a, an observer, not participating as much mainly because of my own limitations of, you know, being nervous about participating in this kind of thing and stuff like that. But eventually, you know, as you got to as I got to know my uh, group of informants, um, and I became more comfortable then I moved also into a more of a participatory kind of approach. Um, obviously, I was participating in the sense of attending seances with this group of people as well. But eventually, it reached the point where I also had uh, my own taste of mediumship development for myself. And for me, this was the, the major point. This was actually, I was still an undergraduate at the time, to be fair. I started this project when I did my undergraduate dissertation. It moved into my PhD. And for me, this experience that I had um, became what I call uh, sort of an intersubjective entry point. It's not my term. I borrowed that term, but it's a a nice term because I shared an experience that my informants have also had, which gave me a kind of gateway into that into that world. Basically, what happened was there was an occasion when the medium couldn't attend. So they decided that they were going to do a group development sitting and basically invite spirits to make themselves known to anyone in the room um so i thought that you know i can meditate and just go with the flow and see what happens i wasn't expecting anything to happen because things don't actually generally happen to me um but as i went into my meditation i was listening to the kind of like the new age music and you know the room was in bathed in red light I closed my eyes and I was sitting in a chair with my hands on the arms of the chair. And I started to feel a tingling in my left hand that it almost started to feel as though my left hand was kind of being pushed up. It felt like it was being pushed upwards by a a little balloon of air or something puffing up like that. And uh, which is a strange experience. And I also ended up having almost like a a mini out-of-body experience during this moment where I was just, I felt like I would just come out of the back of my body very slightly so that I was slightly distanced from my physical body. And I could still feel, I could still feel my body. It was almost as though I was able to observe it and feel it at the same time. And my left hand started to literally move around. It was almost as if it was waving. And I was in a strange state of mind where I realized that, you know, I'm not consciously willing this movement. I don't know what it means. And it really freaked me out. And I snapped myself out of the, the whole, the mini trance. And I was kind of, my heart was going, I was like, what's, what's, what's going on? Um, and then the people, you know, around me kind of laughed and made, made light of it. Because what we should, you shouldn't you should really expect something like that to happen if you go into these situations. Um, So then I went into the meditation and it all came on again much more quick, much more quickly, but it didn't progress any further. But for me, that experience, I call it my hand possession experience, was enough of a taster to realize that there is at the very least an experience that you can have. So there is an experiential origin to the belief in mediumship at the very least, you know, that feels like your body is under the control of something else. And even though it was only my left hand, I can now imagine you know, the whole experience, which also made me realize that it wasn't my calling to be a medium. That I didn't want to do this, although, you know, people had suggested that I could, if I wanted to follow that path, but I didn't want to follow that path. So, yeah, it, that was my point of intersubjective entry, a very important experience for me to show that there was at the very least an experiential side of mediumship that needed to be taken into consideration um not ignored and then if you if you take that experience seriously in itself then you have to take the the other implications that go along with that as well which may be that you know our standard models are limited or they don't they don't cover everything (laughs) that happens in the world so, yeah, important experience. Thank
1: you. Thank you for sharing this. And I'm smiling because as an ethnographer who works with contemporary pagans, I had my fair share or of paranormal experiences as well. Yes. Um, and for us anthropologists who to a certain point went native or could be, you know, accused to do so, we have we're not the only ones. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, Edith, Edith Turner and many others who um um, who did so and decided to tell this story? So uh, thank you for sharing this. I'm with you. Um, thank you so much. But I have to ask you the question because one of the traditional, um, you know, uh, filters in order to understand mediumship is that you know with trickery, fraud, you know, performance. How in your study did you tackle with that um, in the light of your experience, but also of your being, you know, a scholar?
0: Yeah well that it became actually quite a big focus of my dissertation in the end thinking about the role of performance and actually um, complicating the idea of performance quite a lot and I drew on the work of uh, Richard Schechner writing about he, he talked about the um, efficacy entertainment braid in performances and how you can have performances that are specifically geared towards affecting some kind of a change in the world which would be like you know a magical ritual or a seance and things like that still a performance but it's geared towards some kind of change and then you've got the other end of the spectrum which is a purely entertainment kind of spectacle but he also talks about there being places in between pure entertainment and ritual um, which also can be kind of potent kinds of performances so it was really interesting in, um, in spiritualism, the relationship between mediumship and stage performances was always there right from the very beginning. You know, mediumship became a kind of like, well, a parlor activity, parlor game for people to have fun with. Um, it went, you know, there were famous mediums who would go on tours around America and, and Europe, giving demonstrations in music halls and things like that. So there's always been this kind of, Yeah, performative element to it as well and you're right the standard way of thinking is to say that well because there's a performative element to it that therefore it's all fake Um, and it's also true that there is there was a lot of fakery and there is a lot of fakery in in these kinds of areas as well so but what I did was think about this issue of fakery (laughs) and look in the cross-cultural context and to think about the the kind of the Function of things like sleight of hand, um, deliberately uh, manipulating people's perceptions in order to bring about again certain kinds of effects. We know from like stage hypnosis and things like that as well that there's the you can put people into trances and stuff by doing certain kinds of things. Um, you know you can make you can make people believe that magical things are possible by showing them. You know, an illusion. There was a parapsychologist called uh, Kenneth Batcheldor, who did a study of um, psychokinesis, which is you know mind matter effects. And he his experiments were based around like spiritualist home circle kind of environments. And he found that one of his claims was that um, if he introduced fake phenomena, some kind of an artificial effect, early on in these seances, that later on in the session they would have much more kind of profound, um, genuine effects. And his suggestion was that, um, you know, a trick or something like that can shift you into that state of belief in the moment that something is possible. And when you believe that something is possible, there's lots of experiments in parapsychology that suggest this. Famous one by Gertrude Schmeidler called the Sheep-Goat Experiment where, you know, people who are believers in psi score much higher in psi, you know, experiments. So Batcheldoor suggested that tricks can induce this moment of, uh, you know, instant belief. And he said it doesn't matter whether the person believes over the course of their lifetime that that spirits exist or anything like that. What's actually important is in that moment that the experience is happening, whether they believe that it's happening or not. (laughs) Um, And then that can, you know, feeds in suggests again that these phenomena are also, you know, they're not just objective. They also we participate in them. Our own beliefs and perceptions are a part of those experiences too. So I kind of yeah made performance a bit more complicated by saying that even if I did detect trickery in these seances, and I think I did, you know, with with one of the physical mediums anyway, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything else that happens is fake or that these these are not actually techniques that are employed, that have been employed by mediums and people, you know, over, the, over hundreds of years, you know, specifically geared towards inducing altered states in audiences. So that's how I dealt with it.
1: <laughs> and so we can say that maybe trickery is a way, part of the technique, in order to enable this type of phenomenon, right? Am I... Okay, (laughs) summarizing it correctly. Um, I have a couple of questions from the audience. Sorry? I was just saying,
0: it it can be.
1: Okay, I think there's a little bit of a lag. (laughs) Um, So a bit of terminological explanations. You mentioned trans and physical mediumship. So can you tell us the difference? And also something someone from the audience was asking about is channeling a form of mediumship. Um, and maybe, you know, there's you know, lots of new ways challenging challenging you know experiences and how you see them different or in line with what you studied.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Well, the difference between trance and physical mediumship, I should start off, there, is, there are many different kinds of mediumship, um, at least three, you know, within the spiritualist tradition. So you have the more kind of psychic mediumship, Which is what you might see in spiritualist churches, or in America, places like Lilydale, where they will have a medium who goes up on a platform on a stage, kind of like a you know in a church service kind of environment, and they'll pick up messages and they'll say, you know, is I'm getting a J coming through? Can anyone accept that name? Um, And then someone will, and then they'll give them a reading and that kind of thing. So there's that kind of mediumship, which is very subjective. The medium is often interpreting symbols that they are having visions of in their minds. Then we've got trance mediumship, which is where, in anthropology, we'd call it spirit possession, where the personality of the person is uh, displaced by a spirit or a deity. Or, you know, in the case of uh, New Age channeling, it could be extraterrestrial intelligences or cosmic minds or something like that so yeah I would think that channeling is a form of trance mediumship where the, the person goes into an altered state of consciousness and in that state they um, are taken over by a spirit so that was the main practice in the Bristol Spirit Lodge but then there is also physical mediumship and in the 19th century up until like maybe in the 1930s 1940s Physical mediumship was quite common, and it was the production of things like um, ectoplasm, which was a, a supposedly a semi-physical substance really that we contain within our bodies, but that can be exuded during seances and is manipulated by spirits. Um, physical mediums would also do things like produce apparition, no, like full physical manifestations of um, people. Or maybe limbs or heads that would move around independently. Lots of strange stuff. Objects would move around and um, kind of like poltergeist cases almost. Okay, so in the 1940s, I think one of the last famous physical mediums really was uh, Helen Duncan. She was actually the last person tried for witchcraft <laughs> in Britain uh, during the Second World War. Um, but after that, physical mediumship kind of had a bad reputation. People like Houdini had spent a long time exposing fraud, you know, fraudulent mediumship and stuff. So physical mediumship in particular became kind of like blacklisted as a practice and people didn't want to really want to develop it anymore or practice it until maybe the 1990s with a, a group called the Skoll Group who really kind of reinvigorated that and brought it back. So the group that I worked with anyway, they did trance mediumship and physical mediumship. They were trying to produce ectoplasm, not very successfully, and they were trying to produce uh, levitations of of objects and things like that. But we would have visiting mediums who were more developed in physical mediumship who would come. And the difference with these mediums was that you would pay as well when they came to visit, which entered into a whole different kind of territory. Um, But the phenomena that these physical mediums were producing was much more objective you couldn't deny that something was happening in the seance room but the big question is you know what's happening and a lot of the time like we were just talking about it seemed to be you know torches and tricks and things like that but that's not to say again that because other people have had with the same medium all sorts of uh, you know amazing mind-blowing experiences so it's a very complicated area to disentangle <laughs>
1: no i do understand and what about new age do you see you know new age channeling as a form you know how is yeah. it different from other forms of channeling for example as one anonymous attendee is asking
0: yeah i think uh, in many ways it's very similar to spiritualist trance mediumship but i think with um, with spiritualists most of the time the the people who come through the medium's body claim to be you know, the spirits of the dead, of human spirits, essentially. Whereas with, with New Age channeling, it's it's much broader, isn't it? Um, the entities that come through, they may be spirits of the dead, but they also claim to be all manner of different things.
1: <laughs> no, I understand. Uh, Thank you for a clarification. Are you still doing ethnography with uh, mediumship, maybe over Zoom? I just yeah. attended, actually, was invited to um, mediumship, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, it happened over Zoom, and I found it interesting. Um, are, are you having this type of um, well, experiences as well?
0: My, my research has shifted uh, its focus, really, and my, most of my research at the moment is about um, sort of more fairy experiences, uh, encounters with um, extraordinary beings um, like fairies. My sister had a fairy experience when I was when we were young and it kind of always really interested me. (laughs) She saw a small man with um, red hair and a green outfit on dancing on the shelf um, in my bedroom. It was a very strange experience. And obviously my own psychedelic experience was with Mm -hmm. fairies as well. So my research recently has been focused in my local area. Um, and trying to discover what the what the state of contemporary fairy beliefs is around here because I found a lot of very interesting stuff historically which I was not aware of um, even though I've grown up here and so all my experiences and my sister's experience occurred within this folkloric context that we weren't aware of so this is where my research is going now
1: Very, very good. I might ask you more about your current or future research uh, later, but I would really like to know how do you think we can study the paranormal anthropologically? Um, because, of course, how paranthropology differs from uh, the anthropology of religion, because it does, right? Um, can you tell us a bit, you know, how you navigated this complex and interdisciplinary space in your uh, academic experience?
0: Yeah. Um, well. I think one of the big benefits of anthropology um, as a discipline for thinking about these things as distinct from maybe like psychology or or physics or you know or parapsychology even is that the emphasis is on the context the situation that's going on and all of the different factors that are in play in an ethnographic moment so it's it's non-reductive or at least it has the potential to be. And I think that's what uh, we need to understand these kinds of complex experiences. The moment that we start to try and break them down and, you know, put them into a laboratory condition, remove them from the emotional lived world experience that they take place in naturally, then we're kind of steering ourselves away from understanding them. So it's very interesting, you know, Parapsychology has been is influenced by this idea in Western science that you know that's the way that we do research, that's the way that we find out what's true. Whereas anthropology is saying actually it's not about separating the phenomenon from the world. We actually have to understand it in the world. So I think that's the that's where anthropology's main, main contribution lies. But obviously, within anthropology, there are lots of different approaches as well. It's not one big field and there are well it is one big field but it's not one big monolithic field and there are lots of different interpretations so, you know in, in for example like um, you know physical anthropology biological anthropology all of that kind of stuff all of this kind of talk talk about fairies and mediumship and and things like that is totally out there and beyond anything but then on the sort of more social end of things and cultural end of things And we can start to entertain and explore, you know, other people's worldviews. So the step then is to, you know, my step anyway is what I call ontological flooding. You know, anthropology allows us to study these things in their natural context. But then we have to take another step beyond, you know, what the established models and things allow us to talk about. So, you know, we can talk about quite happily in anthropology anthropology about spirit possession and all sorts of different kinds of weird well religious beliefs and all sorts of things as long as we're talking about them in terms of social and cultural you know constructs essentially you know it's all socially constructed at the end of the day and really the true ontology underlying all of this is you know western physics which is the queen of it all okay so that that's where that's where most of this research begins from and ontological flooding is then saying that you know actually we need to take into consideration many many different kinds of processes that might be going on yes there is a physical world that physics can explain but then there's also this experiential thing that's going on you know why is it that people have these kinds of strange experiences why are there patterns between these experiences you know that seem to be disconnected from each other and all of these kind of things and to think about these experiences in terms of you know their social contexts cultural contexts and also their ecological contexts which is the other direction that my research has been going recently so i think that's what anthropology really allows us to do and it also allows us to participate in a way that maybe sociologists might shy away from or uh, you know other kinds of psychologists and things so we are encouraged to actually you know, participate in, um, in rituals in order to understand them. It wasn't always the case, obviously. You know, if you go going back to E.B. Tyler and those kind of people, again, it would be anathema to actually go native. But after Edith Turner and um, you know, all of that, that work and the ontological turn as well, anthropology has got a lot of space for exploring all of these kinds of issues in a non-reductive way. Yeah.
1: Yo, thank you so much. That was very useful. And I would say that maybe anthropology of religion, I mean, traditionally mainstream one focuses more on, you know, studying religious beliefs while bracketing the question about oh, how, what is real and existent, right? And distinguishing the two two layers, which is very important always. But it seems to me that paranthropology goes a step further in, you know, doing that, but also accepting the possibility that something is really happening, um, am I correct?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yes, bracketing has been one of my <laughs> big bugbears. I used to think that bracketing was really excellent. And in, in a lot of ways it is, because like I was saying, it opens it up. You can talk about you know, beliefs as long as you put the brackets around it, about the question of whether it's real or not. You know, it's very liberating. And when I first started to do my research, I was like, oh, this is great. I can just put brackets up and everything will be fine. But then the moment that you start to, like, like, for example, my own experience where it sort of seems to confirm in some way the beliefs, you know, then the brackets start to fall off, doesn't don't they? I mean, you have to then confront the issue of whether there is something more than just social facts and whether there might actually be some kind of real thing going on with this, with mediumship, for instance. So, yeah, breaking down those brackets is a good thing. That's where ontological flooding comes from, is the idea that the brackets kind of hold back all of this possible stuff and that we can let those brackets fall in and then all of these different ideas come flooding in, different ways of interpreting things, different ways of understanding them. Yeah
1: and from ethnographer to ethnographer, from anthropologist to anthropologist, how you find your own balance between, you know, taking possibility into consideration and still working with the the parameters of, of, you know, uh, academia, anthropology, it's true, give us lots of flexibility and tools in order to explore. But still you know, um, I find, you know, I'm curious to know about how you (laughs) think about balancing these aspects.
0: I think, um one of the keys to being balanced about it is just to be reflexive and to acknowledge that, you know, within all of this stuff, this is not what I say is not the definitive statement or what anyone says is not the definitive statement. You know, we're contributing to an expanding field of knowledge. So we have to be kind of, you know, humble about it, I think. Is one way of dealing with that yeah and uh much. yeah acknowledging our own yeah our own subjectivity and all of that kind of stuff and just being transparent
1: that that's wonderful i agree with you thank you for um saying so beautifully <laughs> um what do you think are the main challenges and you know potential possibilities it's um, apparent anthropology opens up um so how do you see, see the field going?
0: Yeah, I think um, an interesting direction that the field is going to go in, and th- but this applies to social sciences generally and anthropology as well, is you know decolonizing our ways of thinking about these things. I think that um, I've just been teaching, just uh, not even an hour ago, teaching a seminar on um, indigenous research methods. And I think that indigenous research methods because they begin from very different ontological assumptions to, you know, Western uh, scientific research methods, have a whole load of interesting scope for exploring these kinds of experiences. You know, for understanding these experiences in terms of, you know, a relational cosmology, for example, rather than in terms of a a cosmology of discrete entities who are separate from each other. So I think, uh, yeah, the future is, in exploring these new and also old approaches to, uh, to doing research and to interpreting data.
1: That's very fascinating. And I would like to um, take the opportunity to ask you uh, a couple of questions from the audience um, around uh, intrusive power dynamics or cultural appropriation hierarchies in the study of paranthropology. Do you want to, do you have something to add on this?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously it's a big issue, isn't it? But, you know, as, a, as an anthropologist, we're not, uh, you know, we're not appropriating other people's worlds Or saying that they're ours or anything like that we're kind of like you know describing or however we want to think about it translating it to to other people so i think you know it's just a matter of how we think about the work that we're doing the way the the kinds of approaches that we bring to it Um, if we can avoid that uh, tendency then that that's a good way to go
1: No, thank you. I think the an answer to this question requires, uh, you know, at least an event of it on its own. And yeah. um, I want to assure the uh, audience that all the questions will be forwarded, that you're asking will forward to Dr. Hunter. Um, so if we don't have time to answer them here, um, they will reach him uh, later. So um, as, as you know, I'm teaching um, now a course in religion, uh, materiality and the senses and I ha- and in the anthropology of magic and religion. Um, and I have a uh, lots of students interested in this type of phenomena. So what would be your advice for students interested in studying the paranormal? And no. I, if I can add a, a sort of question that I received yesterday by email from Sean um, from the California Institute for Human Science, where you know students can study this
0: type of phenomenon yeah well it's an interesting question there's a lot i've seen other people giving advice about this because paranormal obviously is a almost a taboo subject for a lot of people and so lots of scholars who are in the interested in these things suggest that you should save it until later on in your career (laughs) Uh, but i don't think that's i don't think that's good necessarily good advice because it's not how new fields emerge is it you don't save it up till later you if it's here and now and it's relevant then we should be you know studying it now whether we're students or or anything and we should it should be made possible for people to study it if that's what they're interested in so my advice is that if you are interested in studying these things then do it but do it within the you know within your discipline using the tools that your discipline has got at its disposal because you know you can't argue, you can't argue with that you know, if you use anthropological methods to study the paranormal in what whatever way then you know you're doing the anthropology of the paranormal so i think um yeah my advice is to if you're interested in it then do go ahead and do it you know talk to your supervisors and things and explain why you're interested why it's a valid field there is a whole legitimate history, you know, scholarly history of uh, anthropologists engaging with these things. So it's very easy to actually to back it up with, uh, you know, reputable sources. So, yeah, all of these kinds of things are are important.
1: Talking about reputable sources, we have a question from an anonymous anonymous attendee saying, what book recommendation on alternative (laughs) research methods did you have? And also, I would add to this, how do we study spirits, you know? Because sometimes I meet students who are interested in in doing an anthropology of the spirits, right? And where they, you know, present themselves uh, allegedly and how to navigate through cultures, for example. And I'm thinking of you, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Rebecca. And um, yes, so.
0: Yeah, well, my go-to first port of call would be um, Edith Turner. She got a very um, useful, very short little paper published in 1993, I think, called The Reality of Spirits, a tabooed or permitted field of study. And it's just a very short paper, but she explains some of the experience that she had um, in Zambia uh, engaged in this uh, in a ritual. And uh, if the next step then would be to go on to her book, I think, Experiencing Ritual, which is really... You know, it lays it all out. It tells you how she participated in the ritual, how she let herself flow with the emotions and all of these kinds of things to allow something more than she was expecting to happen. And it culminated with her seeing essentially an ectoplasmic kind of materialization of a strange gray blob. But yeah, so I would direct people to Edith Turner's work for a participatory way of approaching the spirits. I think also, though, there needs to be a degree of caution when approaching the spirits. Because, you know, if we think, of, if we think in terms of traditional worldviews and things, you have to get, you should give offerings and all of these kinds of, you know, it's a reciprocal relationship with the spirits. And spirits are tricksy. <laughs> so, you know, think carefully about doing research with spirits because it can lead you down strange routes. Be respectful about it. Um, And just because, you know, you can't necessarily see them in the field doesn't mean that you're not um, offending them in certain ways. You have to be careful. So that's another piece of of advice uh, that I would give if you
1: do want to research spirits. (laughs) Very important one, thank you so much. And talking about spaces within the current structure of academia that we can find in order to um, carve as a space to um, research this type of topics. Let's talk about anthropology of consciousness. Of course, there's a society of anthropology of consciousness within the AAA, the American how it's called uh um, anthropological people association <laughs> um yeah can you tell us more about it you're part of it obviously and um yes can you tell yeah. us more maybe also how what anthropology of consciousness mean and you know how it emerged uh, as a field of study
0: yeah well it emerged from in the 1970s and 80s really from partially you know in response to people like carlos castaneda who had written his you know, influential books about his meetings, ostensible meetings with the Yaki sorcerer and all these kinds of things which really made the idea of being an anthropologist and going out into the field and exploring weird experiences popular for people. So it actually encouraged a lot of anthropologists to, even if Carlos Castaneda didn't actually do the things that he said he did or he didn't do all of them maybe, um, other people did then go out and do that. <laughs> And um, so organizations started to emerge. There was different forms that it took. It was called an Association for Transpersonal Anthropology for a while. And then eventually they decided on the anthropology of consciousness Um, as a venue. There's a journal and conferences as well for anthropologists to talk about um, all these different kinds of things. Parapsychological experiences right at the very beginning. But as the years went by, and you can kind of tell with the name of the journal, Anthropology of Consciousness, that the focus emphasis drifted away quite a bit from these kinds of extraordinary experiences that had initiated the field in the first place. And there was a great paper published a few years ago now by Mark Schroll called something like With a Sigh" in Anthropology. And it was about why this whole process had taken place and why the in- anthropological interest in the paranormal had dwindled. But I think a part of the reason was for kind of in an, in a, an attempt to kind of um, legitimize the study of these things, it kind of got watered down. Um, so, you know, there was much less emphasis on real extraordinary experiences, paranormal experiences, and much more of an emphasis on Consciousness cross culturally, which is very interesting in itself. But you know, it kind of det- moved away, and that's why I set up um, paranthropology because you know it seemed as though the venue that had initially been set up to talk about the paranormal um, in within anthropology had uh, kind of lost that focus. So yeah, I set up a journal to el- to, ina- to reignite that discussion about the real. You know, the real strange kinds of experiences, We're not watering it down with the paranormal, actually, you know, dealing with it face on face value is a very strange thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I, thank you for this clarification. I think it was very useful to many of us. Um, I would like to spend our last minutes to discuss some of your more recent work. Um, greening the paranormal so you wrote a book about it uh, we're all concerned about climate change and many of us do follow sort of relational ontology that you know uh, what's the role of these you know relational ontologies in environmentalist activism
0: yeah. well the book is um it's a collection of essays from different uh, scholars different people in different fields but it's all focusing around um, extraordinary experiences um, and ecology. And it might seem like these are two very, you know, distinct kinds of things. You know, ecology is the science of, um, you know, living systems essentially and how they interact with each other and all of that kind of stuff and extraordinary experiences. Parapsychology is the study of paranormal experiences, but there's a weird overlap between the two Um, in the way, in in lots of different ways, in fact. One of the ways is through people who engage with um, ecology, who participate in landscapes in all sorts of different ways. Whether we're talking about like through walking or surfing or whatever, it's something that Bron Taylor talked about in his book *Dark Green Religion*. People have extraordinary experiences that come directly from um, participation in ecology. Um, you know, one of the main forms of mystical experiences, if you look in the literature on mystical experiences, is um, extrovertive experiences where the landscape and everything around you is transformed in some way, revealing, you know, mystical connection with God or whatever. So, you know, there's a long tradition of know- knowing, awareness of this, with this role of, you know, nature and, in extraordinary experiences. So there's that side of things, which is really interesting. Um, and then there's another s- strand of it, which has emerged in recent years with uh, you know, science of things like plant consciousness and um, plant memory and, and all this stuff, especially the work of Monica Gagliano and other colleagues, which is increasingly suggesting that the world is much more animate than we've given it credit for. Um, and anyway, then when we compare that with the, all the literature from, of the paranormal, the paranormal is basically saying the same thing, that the world is you know, occupied, that this world is haunted, that there are many different kinds of minds, non-human forms of consciousness that exist in the world around us that we can interact with in different ways. So, um, yeah, that was another of the strands of this idea of greening the paranormal. And then a third strand was that actually similar to you know the idea of the greening of religion is that you know, the paranormal in America is a massive demographic, you know, in terms of people's belief in spirits or ghost hunting groups and Bigfoot and all of these kinds of things, UFOs. Um, so you know, people have made the case that religion provides a good, you know, a, a good demographic for getting people to think about ecology. But I think you know, the paranormal does as well. Millions of people around the world are interested in these, these topics and if they, they realize that actually, in some ways, the, you know, the paranormal is dependent on a healthy ecology, then people will, you know, maybe change their mind, change their behaviors and actually, you know, do something regenerative. So I've made the, the case of like Bigfoot hunters, for example, you know, should be planting trees and restoring Bigfoot habitats when they go out on their excursions and things like that. Yeah, so it could have very real positive effects. So yeah, there's lots of strands to that book, but yeah, it's a good good thing.
1: you so much. And I I think it's partially linked to this, a question from uh, the audience. Um, uh, How does, Melissa, uh, how does the sacredness of place have a role in your anthropological work? Do fairies actually have a place in America?
0: In America, they probably do, yeah. In my work, though, yeah, the sacredness of place is becoming increasingly central. My work is becoming increasingly focused on the valley that I live in. It's become, and the more that I research it, uh, the more that I find out that, you know, historically, the people who've lived in this area have, you know, identified certain parts of the landscape as being occupied places. There are places that have got supposedly have dragon nests in them or vipers nests. There are places where um, giants have created features of the landscape. Uh, they've left boulders behind and they've knocked parts of mountains off. There are caves where uh, miners in the nineteenth century claim to have seen, had encounters with a, you know an old hag living deep down in the mountains with a big brass pan, you know stirring. Uh, washing up in there (laughs) crazy things Uh, and stories of people in villages around here waking up in the night like my sister did and having encounters with beings that claim to be spirits of the air so you know this whole place that I've been in the more that I research it the more that I think that actually for our ancestors definitely but maybe something that we would need to rekindle in the people who live here now is a sense of how sacred and alive it actually is so yes it's a it's an important aspect of my work
1: at the moment i think thank you very much i will you know spend the last maybe few minutes uh, by asking questions from the audience there are very many so thank you so much for participating in this conversation damien asks Have you ever had an experience of a certain limit to your spiritual experiences when trying to look upon it by an academic perspective?
0: Well, I mean, my possessed hand experience could be considered a limit for some people. You know, that was at the point where I lost my objectivity. In a sense, it was because I I moved into my intersubjective place. Another experience that I had, which I should mention, in the idea of intersubjectivity, it was actually the very, very first séance that I went to, and um, I saw what I later learned, spiritualists called transfiguration, where a face, a face of a spirit, appears over the face of the medium. And in this very first séance that I attended, I saw this green mask appear over the face of the medium and kind of slide down and just sort of dissipate. And I thought that it was a subjective experience. You know, it was a hallucination of my own. Um, But then when we went out into the house afterwards to discuss, you know, what had happened in the seance and to have tea and some biscuits and stuff like that. um, Independently, I didn't mention it. I didn't want to mention it because it was my first ever seance. I didn't want to make it look like I was some kind of, (laughs) I'm having all these crazy experiences kind of person. But someone else said, did you see that face? (laughs) And I had no choice but to say, yeah, I did. But I thought that it was um, a hallucination. So again, it opens up this possibility that there are certain kinds of experiences that are subjective experiences, but that can be shared as well, or intersubjective experiences that I think is super interesting. Um,
1: Thank you. Uh, Anonymous attendee asks, in what ways are paranormal states similar or similar to or different from other types of transcendence, for example, psychedelic transcendence?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are lots of similarities. The book I'm working on at the moment, which is very nearly finished, is called Deep Weird, the Varieties of High Strangeness Experience. And the real central theme of the book is that all of these different kinds of experiences are connected in some way. It's not to say that they are identical with each other, but that there are similar kinds of processes that are taking place, whether we're talking about psychedelic, mystical, or paranormal experiences. that they have similar kinds of effects on individuals, sort of like changing that, you know, what Jeffrey Kreipel calls the flip. These experiences transform people in some way. Um, and then also in the kinds of characteristics of experiences and the sort the phenomenology of experiences, there are lots and lots of very interesting overlaps. And the one that I focused on a lot in the book that will be coming out later in the year is, uh, you know, what Rudolf Otto called the numinous, this idea of, the, of, of a religious experience being both terrifying and kind of wonderful at the same time. And this feeling response seems to echo through all sorts of different kinds of extraordinary experiences, for, right from you know, mystical experiences through to magic mushroom experiences and uh, seeing a ghost or something in your bedroom. <laughs> so I think, yeah, there are connections here. Not saying that it's necessarily, don't want to be simplistic about it, but there are connections, yes.
1: Thank you, one very last. Do you find that academia is becoming more open to this type of conversations and research or is it still relatively difficult to be taken seriously at face value as a rigorous study?
0: Um, I think in certain areas, it is becoming more acceptable to talk about these things and to discuss them seriously. You know, if you went into a physics laboratory or something and tried to talk to someone about your extraordinary experience, then you might, you know, they might show you the door. If you go into an anthropology department, then you might have a different experience. So, um, Yeah, there are pockets within the academy of safe spaces to talk about these things, but there's also the other stuff that's going on around it. And there is still um, a very, there is still a taboo around it as well. And there are people, some individuals, some organizations as well, that uh, really don't like people to talk about it. (laughs) So there's potential for a backlash.
1: I like to think about nauseologies as one of the places in which we can do that and try to do that. So um, I take the opportunity to wrap up. I think it's time now. Thank you, Professor Hunter, for your participation and wonderful conversation. And thank you for all for having been with us and for the question you asked. Um, please stay tuned to, on the activities of the CSWR, the Transcendence and Transformation Initiative and of Noziologists, obviously. You can find all this information on the CSWR website, including the registration link for our next Noseologies event that will be next week. I will have a conversation with Dr. Amy Hale, um, another fellow ethnographer on ways of knowing through the changing landscapes of esoteric art. We will talk about esoteric art as a way of knowing, women artists and feminism. But if you want to follow Dr. Hunter's work further, you can participate to this event that you can find in the chat. Thank you all uh, for having been with us, and I wish you all um, a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Sponsor, Center
1: for the Study of World Religions. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.